Hi, this is Mia Ashton for Public, and I'm joined today by Gowinda Bogle. Gowinda is a freelance writer who recently had an article published in Unheard, in which he argues that we are living through a pathologization pandemic where we are increasingly interpreting personal issues and the normal struggles of life as medical disorders, and that this is an affliction striking predominantly those on the political left. Gowinda has also written numerous viral Twitter threads explaining psychological concepts and human nature. So welcome, Gowinda. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Mia. Pleasure to be here. Now, before we get started talking about your writing, could you tell me what's your background? How did you come to be writing such fascinating articles and incredible Twitter threads? Okay, so my background is actually in tech. Um, so I sort of worked on a few projects uh, related primarily to search engines. Uh, I even worked a little bit on Microsoft Bing. Um, and one of the reasons why I worked in tech was because I was caught up in the whole sort of tech utopian movement um, of the late 1990s when I was, when I was a child. Um, I kind of believed that the internet was going to sort of end ignorance and enlighten everybody and you know everybody was it was going to bring everybody together and all this kind of stuff and uh, when I actually went into tech I realized uh, that the problems facing human beings uh, were not really going to be solved by tech because they were much more fundamental than that they weren't a problem of algorithms like we always hear about algorithms now but they weren't a problem of algorithms they were a problem of human desires and human biases um, and human prejudices. And so when I had that realization, I moved out of tech. I, I sort of left the tech industry and I became a freelance writer, focusing more on psychology because I felt that psychology rather than technology was the core of the problem. Um, but I use my, my tech background to sort of examine the intersection of technology and psychology. So the ways in which these two forces interact. And I've been doing that sort of for almost 10 years now. Um, I've, d I've written for various uh, magazines. I also wrote um, on the blog of uh, Quilliam, which was a counter-terrorism think tank, uh, which advised the, the UK government um, before it went defunct. Um, but uh, yeah, so since then I've, I've been focusing mainly on, on exploring sort of the ways that technology and psychology interact. I've been doing this on Twitter quite a bit as well. So you referenced uh, the mega threads that I write. Uh, a lot of that is just really the, a product of my research that I've been doing. So uh, it's kind of put me on the map as it were. And so I've kind of, you know, uh, doubled down on that quite a bit. That's great. Yeah, your mega threads are, that's when I discovered you. I think probably that's when most people discovered you. Um, you bring so many yeah. concepts, just absolutely fascinating, and you manage to condense them. Um, so I th let's start with, if you don't mind, we'll start with a few of these concepts before we move into the talking about the article that you wrote. There are some of them are just great. Now, where do I start? So there's there's there are two that are sort of tied together here. Pluralistic ignorance, which you say is the phenomenon where a group goes along with a norm, even though all of the group members secretly hate it, because each mistakenly believes that the others approve of it, which ties in with this, the Abilene paradox. So what's that all about? Yeah, so I think this kind of explains 
a lot of the information landscape at the moment. Uh, there are a few sort of concepts that tie into this. Uh, one of them is the spiral of silence. And the spiral of silence is when everybody's basically afraid of saying what they really think. And so they just kind of just say whatever is needed to fit into the social sort of uh, system that's in place. And this has really, I think, led to a lot of crazy ideas being propagated throughout sort of Western civilization, um, on not just on the left, but on the right as well. I think, you know, you see a lot of crazy ideas get traction because people are too afraid to criticize them because they don't want to be sort of outcasted from their tribe or whatever. So I feel that a lot of the world sort of can be explained in terms of um, people just saying what they think they need to say rather than what they actually believe. I think, well, as you can probably tell from my Twitter account, I'm in the gender war. And goodness me, does that ever yeah. apply to the gender war where everyone's going along with beliefs that I can't, well, I don't believe, mo the majority of people do not believe that trans women are women. The majority of people do not believe that there's such a thing as a male lesbian, but the the spiral of silence, everybody's going along with it because they don't want to be outcasts which okay yes um well the, another thing about the spiral of silence is it kind of explains my disillusionment with the left um you know in preparation for this uh, conversation i watched your uh, your interview with uh, benjamin boyce and uh, it was quite interesting because you seem to have taken a very similar trajectory politically to to me because i was also you know i was a hard leftist uh, when i was young and um, I spent almost 10 years on the left. And I just gradually just found that the people around me um, were saying things that were just obviously untrue, things that were factually untrue. And I tried to understand why they were saying these things. I, was, I actually felt like I was missing out on information that these people had. So I was trying to ask them, you know, why do you believe this? And instead of actually explaining things to me calmly a lot of them just got angry with me and kind of assumed that I was conservative or far right you know because I was questioning these narratives and so it was a gradual process of disillusionment it began sort of in 2013 um, when I was in Luton because I went to Luton to uh, examine al Mahajroun, which is a, a UK terrorist group probably the deadliest uh, jihadist group in the UK and um, I was examining them, I was researching them, I was studying the way that they were using language and, and things like that. And it became clear to me that they're, that they would be the way that they were, even if Iraq had never happened, even if Syria had never happened, um, because these people had grudges against the West long before any of this. And I was trying to explain this to my fellow leftists, and they were completely just hell-bent on um, believing that all of this you know, jihadism was all a product of Western colonialism. It was all a product of the West bombing the Middle East and all this. And I, I knew this, I, I just knew this was not true because I had actually spoken to these people myself. I'd spoken to the Islamists, I'd spoken to the jihadists myself. So I knew that this was just not true. And this was the beginning, you know, because I realized, okay, so they're wrong about this. The left is wrong about this. And then after that, it became all about um, the, the sex differences between men and women. And so between... 2015 and 2017, it became far right to um, to believe that men and women differ on average um, in their behaviours. 
even though decades of research shows that this is the case and not just research on humans, but research on chimpanzees. So, you know, um, chimpanzee, young chimpanzee um, boys or, or male chimpanzees will play with tools, whereas young uh, female chimpanzees will play with, with dolls. So, you know, there are these behavioral differences that were denied from, a, it was only briefly, it was between about 2015 and 2017. And remember, J James Damore did this and he was fired from Google for the, because of this. Um, but then, obviously, the kind of the, the cultural establishment realized that if they were going to sell their trance ideology, then they needed to they needed to actually believe that there were these kinds of differences between men and women, because otherwise it wouldn't make sense for somebody to identify as a as a woman and, and be a man. You know, so it was, it was all kind of like they kind of caught themselves in these weird loops. And so it became acceptable, acceptable again to believe that there were gender differences between men and women. So. You know, it it's all convinced me that kind of the left is really largely about social engineering. It's interested not so much in what's true, but in interested it's interested mainly in convincing the masses of things that it believes are going to bring about equity, diversity, inclusion, and all that kind of stuff, which really goes against my values. Because although, you know, like I said, I was a leftist because I believed people should be treated equally, and I believe in you know, equal rights for all and all that kind of stuff. But for me, I believe you need to live in reality if you want to have these things. You know, you, you can't you can't make social change. You can't make any effective social change unless you're willing to grapple with what's actually real. Um, if you're not living in reality, then you might as well forget about improving life for um, the masses. And so that's why I left the left. I left the left in, in 2017, um, shortly after James Damore had been fired from Google because... I saw the way he was just monstered by the, the left-wing press, um, all of the left-wing press. They hadn't even read the, the Google memo. None of them had read the Google memo. And they just sent, basically assumed that he was a misogynist, that he was far right, um, you know, and even on Wikipedia, it briefly sort of described him as being a conservative and, you know, um, that he had written this thing that was um, basically like misogynistic and all this kind of stuff. So I realized, you know, that I just couldn't, um, it was against my values to, to stay in the left because I, for me, the most important thing is, is believing what's true. And so that's kind of really where I am at the moment. I'm, you know, I do have, I still do have some left-wing values, but I just feel like I'm, you know, the, what the left is now is completely alien to me. I'm, I feel more in tune with the left, with the left of the 1990s, um, but not, not this new left, which just seems to me just to be completely, scrambled uh, I don't you know so uh, yeah so that's where I'm at politically uh, which seems to be where you where you sort of find yourself oh, as very well. much um, every word that you just said rings true to me did you did you pay a price for leaving the left was so did, were there social consequences uh, not as bad as many other people because I was not actually very well known in 2017 I was still a pretty small account um, I did lose some friends, you know, but that was good, always going to happen. Um, I gained friends as well. So it's not, it wasn't a massive issue. And plus, if these people were going to cut, you know, cut me off because of that, then I was quite happy not having them as friends. So I didn't pay any serious consequences. I mean, um, it was more really just, it was more of a psychological consequence because I'd spent 10 years on the left pretty much. And it was something that I did, I begin to identify with and, you know, to leave your beliefs after 10 years, to realize that 10 years of your life, you've just been 
you know, completely deluded. Um, it's hard. It's hard to take. And so it was a bit of a psychological blow to me, but it also helped me to completely be disillusioned with all ideology. Pretty well, not all ideology. I mean, I'm, you know, to say that I have no ideology would be incorrect, but I don't have any tribal ideology. I'm not, um, you know, I don't sort of identify with any tribe or I don't, uh, you know, regard myself as occupying any single point on the political spectrum. I actually think the political spectrum is outdated. And um, so, I mean, you know, I, it, it really, that blow that, that I took, that disillusionment, really kind of stopped me from ever wanting to join any other tribe ever again. You know, I just realized that it was just much safer for me if I wanted to be on the side of truth to avoid any kind of political loyalties and to only have loyalty to the truth because you can't serve two masters if you want to serve the truth. This, uh, okay, let me let me bring up another theory. This mismatch theory somewhat ties in. Moths evolved to navigate by the moon, a good strategy until the invention of electric lamps, which now lead them astray. Equally, humans evolved to be tribal, a good strategy until the digital age, where it now leads us to act like polarized goons online. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, so, <clears throat> yeah, so, um, yeah, this is a good segue into, into this, actually. So, yeah, I mean, this whole tribalism thing that you see online is, it's not a bug, it's a feature of human beings. Um, you know, we evolved to be tribal because... You know, uh, literally 90% of human evolution took place on the savannas of Africa when we were tri when we were living as hunter-gatherers. And the hunter-gatherer lifestyle is obviously configured for tribalism. Like if you don't, if you're not part of a tribe and you're living on the plains of Africa, you're not going to survive for very long. And um, it was obviously, there was inter-tribal warfare. There were, you know, one tribe would usually dominate the other tribe. And so it was important for us to have evolved these tribal behaviors where we have this kind of glue that keeps us together. Um, the, the, the tribes that had this glue, the ones that were strongly bound to each other would survive because they would look out for each other. They would be more coordinated in their efforts um, and also in their attacks on other tribes. A, a loosely knit tribe would not survive um, an onslaught from a, a tightly knit tribe. And so, I mean, you know, some people have argued that this is how we developed religion. Um, because it was a powerful force that brought people together and enabled us to coordinate at, on, at, at scale in ways that sort of any other endeavor wouldn't allow us to do. And so this, you know, 200,000 years of hardwiring of tribalism into our brains has sort of gone awry now because we now live in a different world. We, we've created for ourselves a world we didn't evolve for, which is this new digital age and now these these features of our brain which were once assets are now liabilities because they are now leading us into these irrational belief forming behaviors where we don't believe what's true we believe what our tribe believes because we want that sense of belonging and we want to sort of essentially conform to the system because we want to be part of the system because that's what we that's how we are we're social animals we we don't occupy you know we don't uh, live solitary lives we live as part of a group and so this has affected our belief forming in the modern age and it's really is you know it it, it sort of again it, it ties into the spiral of silence 
because and and the Abilene paradox um, and all of that stuff because this behavior this tribal behavior we want to be part of a tribe so because we want to be part of a tribe we won't say what we really think often you know we'll rather say what we think is going to please our tribe and we'll not not just believe it this is the interesting thing we won't just say what is going to please our tribe we will actually believe it and this is a very uh, very scary thing about humans is that we can convince ourselves things we can convince ourselves of things that are not true and that we know are not true because of our desire to fit a tribe uh, and i actually i wrote a, an article about this uh, about why smart people um, believe stupid things and you know the, the the sort of thesis of the essay is that smart people believe stupid things because they are better at convincing themselves of crazy ideas because they can they can use their reasoning abilities to rationalize and engage in mental gym- gymnastics and therefore that this ability this intelligence is actually something that's also evolved because if we can convince ourselves of things that we know are not true but which are beneficial for us to believe then we're going to survive and obviously the brain didn't it didn't evolve uh, for truth it evolved for survival so a highly intelligent brain is going to be a brain that can convince itself of falsehoods that help it survive which includes falsehoods that will endeavor and that will endear it to the tribe um, and so i think a large part of why you see intellectuals highly intelligent people uh, like biologists who actually believe obvious falsehoods like sex is a spectrum is because they are able to use their reasoning abilities to rationalize what they want to believe in order to fit the tribe and benefit themselves that i have this i had this in my notes so you said intelligent people affiliated to an ideology are more dangerous than stupid people affiliate, affiliated to an ideology precisely for that reason they can convince themselves of the truth of absurdities i i think you know the gender thing is the perfect example you can't you can't find anything better all of these when i first joined i could not understand what i was seeing on twitter all of these incredibly intelligent people saying the most outrageously stupid things that you you helped me to understand how that's possible yeah uh, it it's something that really frightened me because for a long period of time i was convinced i was wrong and that i was just i was being deluded by something i even did fear that maybe i was just far right you know i actually began to believe this kind of nonsense and um i think yeah it, it was an eye it was a game changer for me because to realize that intelligence is not rationality and that there isn't actually a massive amount of correlation between the two you can be highly intelligent and completely irrational and also you can be not very intelligent and highly rational because i think rationality is not a function of intelligence it's a function of character it's about how you approach the the search for truth and what i regard as the two features that are essential for rationality are curiosity and humility i think if you have these two character traits then you will be far more uh, rational than somebody who's even got a much higher IQ simply because the one thing that a person needs to do if they want to approach the truth is they need to avoid rationalization and rationalization comes naturally to us because it's obviously as we are social animals we have to rationalize beliefs in order to fit this tribe and so as richard feynman said is that the one person you must not fool is yourself and you are the hardest person to not fool. So 
it always begins from that position that you have to realize that you your brain is not a truth tracking device it's not it's not there to, to help you to learn the truth it's <clears throat> it's a lie generating device it's an illusion generating device and you have to overcome its nat natural tendency to generate these illusions if you want to get past the first hurdle on the way to truth, which is what most highly intelligent people don't do. They engage in this kind of self-delusion and they use their incredible intellects to do that. So that's what I think we, we need to do is be more curious and be more humble. I think, yeah. There's a, another one you wrote about is belief perseverance, which somewhat ties in here. So you say our opinions are like bricks in masonry. Each supports and is supported by others. So changing a belief means tearing down all beliefs atop it. Such demolition is hard to bear. It's easier to live with a skewed building. So people will rarely let that first one brick budge. Yeah. Um, so this is something I kind of concluded after arguing with a lot of people online. Um, it became clear to me that you can show people that their beliefs are wrong, but it's it's going to be very hard for them to sort of dismantle their beliefs because they've gen they've created this entire architecture of beliefs on on top of it. Sort of um, a lot of people, what they do is they they sort of integrate their beliefs into their identity, um, and they they basically begin to identify as say uh, a trans rights activist um, or you know, even a conservative or anything, you know, basically just, they don't, they don't view their political uh, worldview as a sort of system of finding out what's true. They view it as a core part of their personality, a core part of their identity. And so when you question this, they take it as a personal attack. They think you are actually attacking their identity rather than simply disagreeing with them. Because when I disagree with somebody, I'm not, I'm not personally attacking them. I'm not, you know, I'm, what I'm, all I'm interested in, in what's true. Right. And I don't, I, you know, I'm not interested in this kind of personal bickering or any of that. I just, I'm just interested in what's true. And when I disagree with somebody, it's purely an epistemic question. It's purely about knowledge. It's purely about fact finding that that's the only thing I'm interested in. But I realize that most people are not like that. Most people, when they are engaging in debate, it's not about what's true. It's about, uh, dominating the other side you know because they have this kind of identity and they feel that their identity is superior to yours and they want to you know there are many many facts at play for instance um when you're arguing with a trans rights activist a lot of the time they're not engaging in a a, a conversation about what's true with you what they're doing is they're engaging in a power struggle in which they want to there are several things at play. One of the things that they want to do is they want to convince other people that they are good and that they are sticking up for the for the people who are considered downtrodden. So they they want to um, obviously they regard you as a kind of demonic force. You know they regard you as evil because they believe that you are trying to harm uh, young people. You know that you're trying to cause trans people to commit suicide or whatever. You know um, so they obviously have this grudge against you and they are trying to. Firstly, they're trying to uh, do what they think is social justice. They're trying to uh, beat down the, the bad person, uh, you know, and sort of, uh, you know, punish punish the evil evildoer. Um, so that's why I, I find that a lot of 
trans rights activists, despite calling themselves compassionate, are often quite cruel uh, to people that disagree with them. And another thing that they're doing is, uh, we've all heard this word, is is, uh, virtue signaling, where they're trying to make themselves look good. They're trying to uh, increase their own status by arguing with, with somebody who's regarded as, you know, an outgroup member. Um, so they're trying to, uh, they want onlookers on Twitter to, to say, oh, this person is sticking up for the, the downturn. and they're a really good person. You know, they must be really compassionate. And this is obviously, I'm not saying that, you know, there's a there's a, a lot of misunderstanding about the term virtue, virtue signaling. A lot of people think that virtue signaling is a conscious process, that when you when you say these things, you know, when you say trans women are women, that you're you're deliberately misleading people into trying to uh, view yourself as compassionate. But that's not what virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is often an unconscious thing because it's essentially a form of all signaling is is usually uh, unconscious force. You know, the peacock, the peacock's tail, that's not a conscious thing. It didn't consciously evolve these behaviors. It's something that has ingrained over millions of years in the peacock's plumage because it was gradually selected for by sexual selection. But, um, you know, there's um, this is the thing with human behaviors is that human behaviors are often like peacock tails where we are doing things for show, but we don't realize that we're doing them for show. And this is one of the things that is a big sort of impediment to arguing with people who believe themselves to be um, on the right side of history. Because they have this com- this conviction they are not interested in just a case of what's true or what's false. They're engaged in a completely different struggle. So when you are in, when you are arguing with these people as somebody who is interested in purely in what's true or what's false, it's like a game of it's like one person's playing playing tennis and the other person's playing baseball. You know, so there's there's different dynamics. So that's why people will never see eye to eye when they when they engage in these kinds of debates. And so, you know, it's it's a, be- a very difficult situation to try to convince. Uh, people who are absolutely convinced that you are the devil, you know, because they, they take this as the sort of uh, anything you say against them is going to be used against you because they will twist it in such a way as to make you look bad because they're interpreting everything in the worst possible way because they regard you as a bad person. And it's why when I, I don't really debate with people online um, anymore. I mean, only if I, the only time I debate is if I feel that somebody is actually a good faith person and that they are actually interested in what's true, which is rare, but it does happen. There are people out there who who are interested in what's true, but political activists very rarely are interested in what's true. It's not, like I said, it's not about what's true. It's about power struggle. And so when you do debate with people online, it's, it's usually better to focus on convincing onlookers rather than your opponent. Um, I think that's what, you know, it, it's, that's usually the best thing to do, but um, probably the best of all is just not not do it at all because you just waste your entire day and no progress is made. Yeah. It's something I used to do in the early days, and I I don't I don't do it anymore. But you're right; the onlookers can be convinced. People who there's no performative element; they're just taking in each side. It, it, I think you can convince a lot of people, but I don't bother with it anymore. Anyway, I have lots of these concepts, but we're I think we're let's shift over to this great piece that you wrote in Unheard. So we've got, the gist of it is basically society, we're making people sick by teaching them to feel sick. And that this is, you argue, 
something that that hits those on the left much more than than those on the right. And you open with long COVID. Now I've been thinking about this type of issue for a long time, and yet I hadn't actually put long COVID into this category until I read your article. So what's your th- what are your thoughts on long covid is it is it real is there an element of it that's real is it is it imagined what what do you think i think it's it's 100% real um it's absolutely real because long covid is not a single condition it, it's an umbrella term for a host of complications of covid infection and all, all diseases have complications so this is a given you know so it's obvious that long covid is a thing it's just that the problem is that what people mean by long COVID is often not what it actually is. Um, so, you know, you can, you know, because COVID is is a virus that affects many parts of the body, there are very different sort of a wide range of complications you can have as a result of COVID infection. Um, you know, anything ranging from um, the loss of smell to uh, myocarditis, you know, there's just a, a massive gamut of things that can go wrong when you have a COVID infection. And all of these things together are labeled long COVID. And this is the problem because when people hear the term long COVID, because it has a very specific name, people assume that it's a single condition, that it's it's like a kind of conveyor belt that you begin with, with COVID and then you just, tran- you, know, you, you sort of transition into long COVID and that it's, it's basically the same for everybody. That everybody, you know, who has long COVID has similar symptoms or whatever but that's not actually what it is it's just a umbrella term for a very very wide range of different complications and i think because it has this this name people and people are assuming that it's one thing it's possible for people to see their own symptoms in long covid so you know i think there are probably about, there are probably hundreds of different symptoms of long covid and so the chances of you having at least one of those symptoms it's going to be very high because some of the symptoms are very general. They're, they're things like depression or um, loss, uh, lack of energy. You know, you could get lack of energy after eating a big meal, you know. So, so you know, it's, it's these are very vague um, sort of t- uh, symptoms. And so it's very easy for people to view their own life as being afflicted by long COVID. Um, you don't, you know, you, don't, you can actually ha- be relatively healthy and still think you've got long COVID symptoms. And so this is the problem here. And, you know, I I think the thing that really sort of made me suspicious of long COVID originally was seeing the, the fact that COVID actually affects older people mainly. It, it, it's physical. Uh, it, it does more physical damage to older people than it does to younger people. And it also does more uh, damage to males than females. Even though females are more prone to autoimmune disorders, um, the damage that that COVID does is is usually much more um, sort of extensive to, to to the male physiology. We don't actually understand why that is, but it but it's um, this has been shown in in massive studies. And so, if if men and older people are more affected by COVID physically, um, then it would follow that they would also have the more complications from from COVID. But the problem is is that actual long COVID reports are much more numerous uh, amongst women and amongst, well, amongst younger people, particularly than older people. Um, and this is 
this was the first thing that sort of struck me as, as very strange. And then I also realized a very unusual fact, which was that transgender people are the most likely of all to regard themselves as having been afflicted with long COVID. And so I thought this can't be true because this obviously is, you, you can't use stuff like autoimmune disorders for this because trans, the transgender people includes both people born male and people born female. So, you know, this, com this completely just perplexed me. And then I realized uh, from this massive study uh, that there was strong correlation between having uh, psycho between having sort of psychological mood disorders, so stuff like depression and anxiety before COVID infection and reporting co uh, long COVID after COVID infection. So this is another thing that's unusual. You know, why would having, psych uh, having these psychological issues before COVID infection make you more likely to have long COVID after infection, or at least make you report having long COVID after COVID infection? Um, so this was when I realized that, hang on a second, this, this must be a fact of people who are interpreting their psychological malaise as long COVID. Um, because, you know, th there was one um, explanation that was proposed by, uh, by a few experts um, who basically claimed that because, psycho because um, sort of depression and anxiety can uh, cause it can affect the inflammatory response in the immune system to certain uh, viruses that maybe this is causing uh, more complications. But this, there's a few things that are wrong with this. Uh, firstly, there was actually a study conducted on this and, and it showed that there was zero correlation between having, psycho uh, between having depression or anxiety before long COVID and having uh, a different inflammatory response after COVID. Uh, so, so this was actually shown in, in a study, but it also it doesn't explain um, sort of just the, the, the fact that uh, long COVID reports are not actually well correlated with, with serological evidence of COVID. Um, because um, there are, you know, a lot of people who actually go to the hospital with three or more symptoms of long COVID and then they have blood tests. And many of these blood tests, in fact, most of these blood tests show that they have no serological evidence of having had COVID. And that's what's very special about COVID, about long COVID, is that we can actually test whether people can have this disorder or not. We can't do that with depression. We can't do it with anxiety. We can't do it with a lot of these other conditions that people are claiming to have. But we can do it with long COVID because if, if you've got no serological evidence of having had COVID, if you've got no, no antibodies to COVID in your blood, this very it's highly unlikely that you've had COVID. And so um, it, it's a good way of objectively measuring whether somebody actually has the condition that they believe they have. And that's what's special about this whole long COVID, COVID thing. And it's why I opened with, with, with this, um, because it's, it's something we just haven't been able to do with, with other conditions. Uh, because, you know, with, with a lot of other conditions, you just have to trust that a person is telling you that they have the thing that they have, um, particularly with, with, with mood disorders like anxiety and depression. That's right. So for other psychiatric epidemics, of which there have been many, you can't test. You just, you are taking someone's word for it. I think it's fascinating that you can actually test. And now, have you come across Edward Shorter's concept of the symptom pool? How sort of yes. mental illnesses yeah. evolve over time and the symptom pool is always changing. And, and so unhappy people 
who are looking for an explanation as to why they don't feel good, why they feel so unhappy, can draw from the symptom pool. And now they have long COVID to draw from the symptom pool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think this has become, I mean, obviously, you know, people like Short and um, uh, Ian Hacking and people like that sort of predicted this kind of stuff, um, you know, before the digital age. But in the digital age, I think this has become so much more of a problem um, for a number of reasons. And I think, uh, you know, I, I mentioned cyberchondria in the uh, in the essay, which is a new thing that's unique to the digital age, where the symptom pool is essentially infinite because what you can do now is you can just Google symptoms. You can basically Google your symptoms and it will give you a whole host of diseases that you could possibly have so that you can pick and choose whatever disease you want to believe you have, you know? And um, so, you know, it's, you don't even have to leave your house for this. You can literally do it from your bedroom. And so I think it's, it's made it possible for people to convince themselves that they have, a disease pretty much to explain almost any problem in their life. Um, and, you know, there's this thing called confirmation bias. It's, it's quite a well-known thing. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure your audience will know it, um, but I'll, I'll describe it anyway, because it's, it's so important. Um, so confirmation bias is when you, when you uh, ignore information that doesn't fit your narrative and you remember and focus on information that does. And so what you can do is if, if you're, googling symptoms you can ignore all of the things that don't apply to you and then you can just fixate on the things that do apply and then that way you can convince yourself very easily of pretty much anything and i think that this does explain why there has been a surge in reports of pretty much every psychological disorder um you know i mean because I, I was looking through or you know i spent so much time just looking through the the changing incidences of mental illnesses and almost all of them have increased over time, um, you know, and it's it's unusual because there's probably many, many explanations for it. And, you know, the, a lot of people have, ex have offered so many different diverse explanations. Um, some of them have given physiological explanations. Some have said that maybe it's the pollutants uh, in the water and in the air. You know, there's microplastics, there's xenohormones, um, antidepressants are now in our rivers, all this stuff, you know, which may may be a factor. But I think really it's got more to do with, I think more of, more of it's psychogenic than physiogenic. So more of it's a result of humans, of human thought and perception than of actual physical changes to the body. And I think that social media has become the primary conduit by which these diseases are being transmitted, or at least the, the, by which this sort of ghosts of these diseases are being transmitted, the sort of phantoms, you know, of these diseases. Um, we know this, I think, because we can actually observe it. I mean, if you look at uh, TikTok has become a very particular uh, sort of super spreader of this kind of pathologization, because if you go onto TikTok and you type in things like uh, DID, so dissociative identity disorder, which is what uh, the new name for multiple personality disorder, which I don't believe is a real thing, but we can talk about that maybe some of the time. But um, yeah, um, so... If you type in DID into TikTok, you will just be inundated. You'll be avalanched with videos of people claiming to have like 36 different personalities. And in each video that they release, they're, they're a different personality. And it, what you'll find is that 
the, 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 the videos that are most common on TikTok, the sort of diseased videos on, on, uh, that are most common on TikTok tend to be the ones that are the most spectacular. So people don't have, um, you know, people don't have the kind of diseases that are not particularly spectacular, like, for instance, long COVID. You don't see much, you don't see many long COVID patients on on uh, on TikTok. At least you don't see many people who are dedicated their account to long COVID. They might claim that they've got long COVID, but you don't see any accounts that are specifically about long COVID on TikTok. But what you do see is you see huge numbers of people, Tourette's, you see huge numbers of people with DID, you see huge numbers of people with schizophrenia. So you see huge numbers of people who have got very spectacular mental illnesses, mental illnesses that create a spectacle that, that basically um, are, to, to, to use, I mean, a very perverse word, but that are entertaining to watch, you know, because, because it's entertaining to watch somebody transition into different personalities. Uh, and so you see that there's a, this kind of, almost like a kind of economy that has become very rampant on TikTok where people now are pretending to have these mental illnesses for clout and p many people have been caught um you know i reference uh, this one uh, lady called ticks and roses who developed pretty big following on tiktok for tourettes she you know she was a tourettes awareness account you know uh, at least that's what she labeled it and um you know she was basically she was she was let's be real she was entertaining people she was uh she was basically a comedian who was using tourettes as the punchline you know, she was using her ticks as the punchlines to her jokes, essentially. And um, so because of this, she developed a big following. And obviously, the, the primary age of the TikTok audience is it's quite low. It's quite a young people who use TikTok. So they're very impressionable and they're easily misled. And um, so she she had no problem, you know, building an audience based on this. But then old videos surfaced of her. Uh, when she didn't know she was being recorded and it became clear that she doesn't actually have Tourette's and she was just making it all up. And she's she's just one example. I mean, there are many examples of people making this up. So social media, I think, has spread. Sorry, there was one thing I wanted to add to that, which is that after um, Tourette's began to go viral on TikTok, there were cases of people reporting um, TikTok ticks, which is young girls primarily who were presenting to clinics with Tourette's-like symptoms. So they had tics and they'd all been viewing tic, uh, Tourette's influences either on YouTube or on uh, TikTok. And this was sort of, you know, completely per perplexing to the psychologists and psychiatrists and doctors who were um, examining them because they had no history of having tics no history whatsoever. And they'd only developed these tics in the immediate aftermath of watching these influencers who were claiming to have Tourette's. So I don't really know what's going on here, to be honest. I, I don't know whether this is intentional, whether they are intentionally doing this uh, because they believe that this is a good way to get attention or whether they have developed it sort of as some kind of underlying social contagion that's that's subconscious in nature that that is kind of, uh, you know, that they're just kind of, convinced that they've got it. It's a very unusual, I find social contagion very unusual because it, I don't like, again, I don't think that this is a single thing like long COVID. I think this is a very wide range of different things going on. When people say social contagion, it could be some subconscious, it could be conscious. Um, it might, you know, it, it could be something that people are doing to fit in. It could be something that 
people are becoming convinced on convinced that they have via apophenia, which is when people see patterns in things that are not there, you know, when they see patterns in noise, for instance. So there are a few psychological mechanisms. So I don't know why these girls are presenting to clinics with Tourette's like symptoms, but it does show one thing. It shows that what people see online is affecting um, the kinds of diseases that they believe that they have. And so social media is definitely a massive influence on this. And again, Instagram is another one. I think Instagram has um, really, you know, it all, I think it really began with Tumblr. Uh, Tumblr was the first um, of these kind of social media platforms to really push um, a lot of illnesses. And gender, I think this whole gender stuff really began with Tumblr, um, online anyway. You know, it, it, it sort of, uh, because there was a big movement on Tumblr. There was, obviously it was communities were active on, on, on Tumblr. And there was this one community which was all about being non-binary and, you know, sort of querying the sort of uh, classifications of, of man and woman and all of this stuff. And that really, that was where it first became viral, I think was on Tumblr. But then since Tumblr has sort of not, Tumblr is not as sort of prominent as it used to be. And so th those communities moved over to other platforms. And um, so you see them, obviously they're, they're very prom prominent on TikTok. TikTok is probably the main, the main one now, but there's Instagram, I think has influenced psychological maladies in in different ways in that it's um i think what it's done is it's particularly with young, young girls is that it's created new pressures for young girls because now there's this whole you know social um uh, selfie dysmorphia where young girls are basically seeing these sort of perfect women with like you know maybe plastic surgery um uh, with uh, digital beauty filters on their faces and they're thinking that that's how these women actually look. And so that's sort of making them feel insecure about themselves. And so because they're feeling insecure about themselves, they're developing uh, sort of distress. And this distress may become depression. It may, may become anxiety. And then this is creating a kind of snowball effect where because they've got this depression, anxiety, you know, that they, they engage in these behaviors where they're now spending even more time doom scrolling on social media. They're not doing anything else. They're just sitting there you know, and they're, they're just constantly just making themselves feel negative. And then what's happening is that when they develop these disorders, these like depression and anxiety as a result of this lifestyle that they've just sort of sucked, that they're sucked into, they're now feeling that the only way that they can develop some kind of validation um, is by viewing themselves as victims and uh, sort of viewing themselves as afflicted because there is this kind of victimhood culture that we have where there's a kind of certain prestige in pain where if you are, you know, if you view yourself as oppressed, and I don't mean oppressed just by sort of, you know, the patriarchy or systemic racism or, or capitalism, but oppressed by diseases. So if you were born with a condition, then that's also a form of oppression in a way. To, you know, it's a, it, people are looking for, I think, sympathy because we are, you know, I think a lot of this has been exacerbated by atomization now. You know, we're all sort of drifting apart in a weird way because people are spending more and more time on their electronic devices and less time talking to real people in face to face. And I think a lot of people are feeling lonely and they feel like they need sympathy. That's one thing. And then there's another thing, which is social media clout people who want to develop followings online want clout. And both of these things uh, can lead one to sort of feign illnesses because they can find that 
if they can't, you know, if they can't become the perfect person on Instagram with the perfect lifestyle on Instagram, uh, then they can view themselves as oppressed. That's an, this is another route to, um, you know, to sort of validation where they can view themselves as having conditions, various psychological maladies, and they can say, despite having all these maladies, I'm still here. You know, I'm still going strong. Uh, there's even a name for this, which is, is it's called sad fishing, where people will seek validation online by, you know, viewing themselves and, and trying to convince other people uh, that they have these these medical conditions. And I do think that this is a major issue. I think we do celebrate pain as a society. We celebrate oppression. We celebrate um, misery and, and disease because, if you, you know, it's there is something sort of where so there is something uh, to be celebrated about somebody who has, who has genuine illnesses and who is overcoming them, you know, and that's completely worthy of respect. If you actually genuinely have a disease and you, you know, and you're, and you're living your life to the fullest, absolutely. That, that's something worthy of respect. But the problem is, is that it leads people to invent diseases uh, in order to try to, get to it, that, that same kind of uh, respect, you know, in order to steal that valor. And so I think that that's, that's uh, one of the sort of big super spreaders of, uh, of this kind of what I call the pathologization pandemic. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Publix podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.